Let's pray as we open up God's word together. Lord God, your word is beautifully rich. Help us to see it afresh this morning. And as we glimpse your heart in your word, Lord, may you incline our hearts towards you and your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are in our final part of our Jonah series. And uh, so if, if you're visiting or missed it whilst away, and if you're interested in the context sort of leading up to this, this final bit of the story, uh, then you can uh, find the rest online on our website or on most podcast apps that you might use as well. I was going to start this morning by saying that this bit of the Bible is not in children's Bibles. Jonah chapter 4. Most of them drop off chapter 4. It is too adult-themed for kids' Bibles. But not this one, you'll be glad to hear. Not this one. Ten points for including Jonah chapter 4. But before we get too carried away with um, any more points for this one, uh, a little preface. Now, this was given to us by a friend who uh, evidently didn't read much of it before making the purchase. And uh, we have subsequently had a good laugh uh, with the friend about it. Uh, Here's a first lesson for this morning. Don't judge a book by its cover. It might have a beautiful cover and be theological rubbish. So let me read a little bit for you and see if you can pick up any uh, slight problems with the story. So um, remember the backstory. The Ninevites have turned to God. They don't get destroyed. Jonah's angry about that. God sends a plant to shade Jonah, then a worm to kill the plant. Then Jonah wants to die again. And uh, let me read it from the second last paragraph in here. You, you can see it up there as well. But God said, you are angry with a castor oil plant you did not tend and which grew and withered in only a short time. Yet I should not be concerned with the fate of an entire city that is home to thousands of people. So far, so good. Not, not, not too bad so far. Jonah understood. The Lord's mercy was too big for a prophet to comprehend. Nineveh may have done wrong, but the repentance the people had shown fully justified their salvation. All right, I'm glad I'm hearing a sense of you picked up the problem with this book. No! Ah! No, this is not a story about how amazing the Ninevites were in the way they repented. This is a story about our great God and his great compassion and concern to rescue people who cannot rescue themselves. That's what we are going to see this morning. We're going to notice and explore three things along the way. First, Jonah's ironic complaint. Secondly, uh, God's object lesson about Jonah's disordered love. And thirdly, the call for us to share God's compassion and concern. So firstly, uh, an ironic complaint. The complaint is quite simple. It's God's compassion. 
And as one preacher once said, getting angry at God for being compassionate is like getting angry at water for being wet. As we saw in chapter 3, God has a tendency to gravitate towards the distant. And Jonah ironically complains that God is too compassionate to the wrong people. So let's have a look at verse 1 together in chapter 4. It'll be up on the screen. would love you also to follow along in a Bible or device if you have it. So remember the backstory. God has just compassionately relented from destroying Nineveh. And now we see a side of Jonah that has been alluded to all the way along. Verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. A literal translation of that would be to say, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and he burned with anger. This is about as strong an expression as you can get in Hebrew. Jonah is furious. He is raging that God would do such a thing, that God would have such reckless love. And so he prayed to God, verse 2. This is the second time Jonah prays. And it's quite the contrast, isn't it, to chapter 2, where uh, chapter 2's piety and, and carefully measured words of thanksgiving. No, this time Jonah just rages. See, towards the end of verse 2, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Ah, the truth comes out. We've been wondering, why exactly did Jonah run? Did he run away out of fear? Yes, but not fear for his safety. Fear that God might forgive the evil and wicked Ninevites. And so he says, I knew you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. There is such irony here in this. Jonah quotes a classic Old Testament creedal statement describing God's wonderful character and nature. Your Bible footnotes probably point you to a few other places where this exact phrase is used. And he quotes it as a complaint. You can almost imagine the gritted teeth through which he says it. All along the book, we have seen that Jonah knows the correct theological truths about God but he doesn't have a clue about God's heart. Is there a warning in there for us? Know the correct theological truths, but miss God's heart. There's a warning there for me. Verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is exasperated in his anger towards God. Why? Because 
it seems like God has so easily rolled over based on the pathetic, heathen Ninevite tactics of appeasement. Cheap, fickle, bound to be short-lived repentance. Jonah is embarrassed and theologically scandalised that God would offer compassion so easily, so readily, suggests that God can be bought by any vile or wicked sinner who happens to figure out the right price. One commenter put it this way, the narrator carefully tells the story according to his inspired purpose, it's God's purpose, which is to arouse the audience to disassociate itself from Jonah's narrow nationalism. You could say his narrow view of God's grace. Jonah has just witnessed, I mean, think about the story, he's just witnessed the most spectacular, utterly miraculous event. It's extraordinary, I mean, what a sight. These, I mean, these were terrible people, we've talked about that in previous weeks. Nasty, horrible people. Wrong seemed right, right seemed wrong, and it's extraordinary, 120,000 people turning to God. Jonah could be convicted of God's heart, convicted of God's great compassion and concern to rescue people who cannot rescue themselves. Instead, his heart has grown cold and calloused. He could not see past his own self-righteous, mean-spirited, narrow-minded self-focus. The question for us this morning, as we sit under God's word, is what's my heart look like? Does my heart look more like God's or more like Jonah's? Now, God could have given Jonah his wish. Take my life, Jonah has prayed. But God continues. True to his loving heart, he he leans towards Jonah and engages with him. Verse 4. But the the Lord replied, "Is, is, Is it right? Is it right for you to be angry? This is the key question. And he's going to answer it with a scandalous object lesson. Brings us to our second thing to notice and explore. A disordered love. A disordered love. But before we get there, have you ever got way too emotional about something that you probably shouldn't have? How about Mufasa on the cliff in Lion King? Anyone? Or Thanos? Clicking his fingers and your beloved favourite Avenger vanishes. Or the first ten minutes of the Disney movie Up. Has has anyone been there before? Worth a watch. That that montage of Carl and Ellie's life together. A tearjerker for sure, let me tell you. Or you know the expression, the straw that broke the camel's back. It's when you're at the end of your rope and nothing's been going right, everyone's been on on you about something, you're tired and you're stressed, and then you knock over the coffee that you just bought. Oh, and either the tears or the anger or probably a mixture of both is about to come. 
at the end of your rope. And if someone doesn't know the context, if someone doesn't know that that's where you're at, they'll likely be saying, whoa, take, take, take it easy. It's, it's just a cup of coffee. You're overly emotionally involved about something you probably shouldn't be. I don't know if I'd say that bit, but it helped make my link. Uh, Jonah's spilt coffee is a plant and a worm. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So the narrator transports us back in time to the beginning, just before verse one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah had gone out. Here we see the location where this conversation has, has started to unfold. And it seems like Jonah's been holding out a little bit of hope, isn't he? Maybe God might come to his senses and wipe out Nineveh. Maybe, maybe Jonah's hoping that their repentance would be so weak, so short-lived, that it wouldn't actually make it to the 40 days until destruction. And so he sits down in a little shonky makeshift shelter to watch and wait. Now, the region would have been pretty barren. And so his shelter was probably really just sort of like a pile of rocks that, uh, that, that made sort of a rough wall. And uh, it wouldn't have had, he wouldn't have had much supplies to build kind of a roof over it. So you'd probably just sort of huddle up against it and sort of spin around it as the sun moves around and get a little, little bit of shade up against the hot rocks. Verse 6. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. God is still showing patience, concern, compassion, even towards Jonah, his hard-hearted, narrow-minded prophet. And Jonah greatly rejoices. I mean, the emotional swings here are huge. You know, from as angry as you could possibly be to Oh, super happy. The, the, the comic satire feel of the book is really starting to take off by this point. Verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And Jonah is clearly not in the mood to be singing, blessed be your name. You give and take away, you give and take away, blessed be your name. No, he is not in that kind of mood. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, is it right, here's the question again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it it sprang up overnight and died overnight. God's point here? Jonah, I can see that you're really emotionally involved with this plant. You, you, um, You didn't create it. Uh, you, you, you didn't plant it, you, you haven't watered it, you haven't looked after it, uh, it only existed for 24 hours. But notice at this point, God, God doesn't rebuke him for the anger. 
David's just pointing it out. He's, he's stating it. Oh, almost to say, okay, Jonah, I grant that you can have a strong emotional concern for a plant. So if you can feel that strongly about a plant, what about me, Jonah? Well, what things can I feel strongly about? Verse 11. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Jonah, if it's right for you, a human being, to care deeply about and relatively insignificant, unimportant plant that you didn't create, it follows then that it's right for me, the, the maker of the universe, to care about 120,000 of my image bearers, human beings, who I did create. The plant is God's scandalous object lesson to teach Jonah about his great compassion and concern to rescue people. And lastly, God points out that these people cannot tell their right from their left. It's an interesting expression, and it's a unique phrase in the Old Testament. So it's hard to know exactly what it means, but as usual, it's best to use the context surrounding it to help us to figure it out. So let's, let's think about it. They cannot tell their, their right from their left. It doesn't mean that they aren't responsible for their evil uh, and wickedness. We've seen in, in chapter 1, the story begins, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, God did send Jonah with a message of judgment. He had seen their evil and wickedness. So it doesn't mean they aren't responsible. But this phrase also highlights that they did need God. There's, a, there's an ignorance there. They, they couldn't rescue themselves from the destruction that they were spiraling into. And we see that at the beginning of the story as well. Jonah, uh, God did send Jonah. He, he sent him. He sent his prophet to them. And Jonah knew exactly what that meant. It meant the possibility of forgiveness and rescue. The Ninevites were in, ignorant of God, yet still responsible for their sin. They needed rescue, and they could not rescue themselves. The scandalous object lesson of the plant revealed Jonah's disordered loves. He loved the shade of the plant, but had no love for 120,000 people in Nineveh. Jonah was full of emotion for the plant. And God is full of emotion for people who are ignorant of him. God has great compassion and concern to rescue people who cannot rescue themselves. And as we, as we laugh at Jonah, and I think invited to do so in this story, what are your disordered loves? Are you passionately concerned for lost people? who cannot rescue themselves, or your social time disordered, your boat disordered, your work, your caravan plans, your family time, 
your toys in the shed, your bank balance, disordered. What's the order of your love? What's, what's got the focus of your heart? And imagine if, imagine if, imagine if we all got emotional about the right things. Imagine if all of God's people everywhere got emotional about the stuff God gets emotional about. Which brings us to our last thing to notice and explore. A shared compassion and concern. The story feels like it ends on a cliffhanger. We don't hear any further response from Jonah. It's as if it's inviting us readers to ask, what should Jonah's response be? What should my response be? What's the right response? It's to get overly emotional about the right thing. All things in moderation, it's a helpful maxim in life unless it's about Jesus. Really, it should be all things except Jesus in moderation. I know that's almost just as catchy. When, when, when you dwell, because when you dwell on God and you think about who he is, his character and what he has done and his love, there, there's a lot to get emotional about. He has great love for us. He is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2 tells us. The God of all all grace has called you to his eternal glory, 1 Peter 5 tells us. Jesus describes his heart as gentle and, and humble or lowly, Matthew 11 tells us. Psalm 100 tells us that for, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. And Titus 2 tells us, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. We should have God's compassion and concern. If you've received that grace yourself, then he calls you to share his heart, to share his great compassion and concern for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We are called to be God's messengers to the nations. And Jonah is one of those texts in the Old Testament that make clear the, the overt mission emphasis of the New Testament. It was God's plan all along, all the way through. And he uses his people as his messengers. You, you cannot read the book of Jonah and miss God's heart for even the most distant of people. The story of the Bible is a story of God bringing people to himself. It begins with him creating a world full of people to know him and to be known by him. And Jonah is just one of many stories that highlights this. From God's plan to bless the whole world through his people, the Israelites, launched with Abraham's family in Genesis 12, to Ruth, the non-Israelite Moabite, becoming part of Jesus, the Messiah's family tree. To Psalm 96's majestic vision of a whole world singing and declaring God's praises and wonderful works. To Isaiah declaring that Israel was meant to be a light out to the nations, to declare his salvation to the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 49, to Jesus 
commissioning his disciples to go and make mature disciples of all nations in ever-increasing number to the vivid image of Revelation 7, where we see people from every nation, tribe and tongue enjoying God and singing his praises. God's heart is to have the hearts of the most distant. Jonah may have been nasty, mean-spirited, but evidently he had beautiful feet. He had beautiful feet. Let me show you what I mean. Romans chapter 10. Come with me there. It is on the screen. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That's non-Jew. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He had beautiful feet because he did accidentally bring good news. People cannot rescue themselves. If, if you're a Christian, if, you're, if you love Jesus and he has saved you, you're rescued because God has worked through others of his people to proclaim his gospel invitation to you. And as you've heard it, he's enabled you by the power of his spirit to respond. People cannot rescue themselves. The job that Jesus gave us in the world is not done. That job to make mature disciples of all nations in ever-increasing number is not done. Jesus is the only hope for this world. And there are literally, literally billions of people destined destined to spend eternity suffering, separated from God's goodness. And we have the only means of escape. God's people have the only means of escape. So will we be content to stay a church of 240 with one service supporting a small handful of missionaries for another decade? I pray the answer is no if we claim to share God's great compassion and concern for people from every nation, tribe and tongue, we must grow our church and we must send more workers. We must count the cost and grow as big and send as many as we possibly can. And the change will hurt. Again and again it will hurt. But it's God's gospel call on us. Billions currently lost. And to be apathetic and complacent with the status quo is not good enough. It's not honouring to Jesus and it is not obedient to the core. We cannot act as if the job is done when it is not done. I pray that we might all increasingly share God's compassion and concern for Bustleton and for all of the world. That we might make the worship and enjoyment of God by all peoples, the number one priority in our lives. I once got to try out a friend's uh, VR gaming setup. 
uh, he had a zombie defense game. So you put on this headset and you hold the controllers, which then through the headset become guns. And the game starts, and you're on this patch of grass in the... It's fairly dark, and there's a tree line just kind of all around you. And it's, it's actually 360 all, all the way around. And uh, bit by bit, the zombies start coming out of the tree lines. And so you've just got to keep shooting and defending them off. And uh, it, it's very easy to get focused looking in, in, in one patch, because you're looking over here, and you're going, I'm doing pretty good, keeping them at bay. They're, they're, they're nice and distant. And then the next thing you know, you're bitten in the back of the neck by one that came up from behind you because they come from everywhere. And um, it, let me tell you, the game is terrifying. I don't recommend. Um, at, although if you watch somebody else do it, it's quite hilarious to watch them freak out. Um, some people think mission is like that. Why am I telling you this? If, if some people think and say every church, we just focus on, on our little corner of the globe. We just focus here. We just focus in Bustleton alone, and the job will get done. Now, it doesn't work that way in zombie attack, and it doesn't work that way in God's mission. Here's something that we need to be very clear on. We cannot just focus on our little corner and ignore the rest of the world. And here's why. The reality of unreached people groups prevents that kind of thinking. The reality of unreached people groups. Now, what is a people group? A people group is a bunch of people who share a common language, culture, and history. There are around about 17,000 different people groups in our world today. You belong to a people group. I belong to a people group. For me, I'm Anglo-Australian living in Australia. For many of you, you might share that. And many of you, you uh, might not. So an unreached people group does not have sufficient gospel resources to see themselves reached with the good news of Jesus. In other words, there are few or no local churches established. There's little or no Bible translation work done in their heart language. There's little or no church leadership training being done. And there's few or no overseas missionaries serving amongst them. So a person in and belonging to an unreached people group won't hear about Jesus. They have no choice. They will not turn to God unless somebody goes to them. Just like Nineveh. There are over three billion souls in unreached people groups today. That's over 40% of the world's population. You can see the stats on, on websites like joshuaproject.net. There's a, there's a quick um, graph for you. The job is not done. Church, we don't talk about this enough. We don't talk about it enough. And I want to finish today with some practical ideas and thoughts, really just asking the question, what's your next step? to grow your heart for the lost, to increasingly share God's compassion and concern. Five quick thoughts and ideas. Number one, do you know who our mission partners are? Do you know who our mission partners are? If you don't, our website actually has a page on it on a church life, world mission. You can see a whole lot of information about the, the mission partners that we have as a church. 
Or you can chat to someone at the hub and they'll show you on an iPad. Or, or do, you, do you read at least one of our Link Missionary newsletters that come out each month? They're always available on the, on the board just in the foyer, the blue world map. Or better yet, do you personally sign up to receive one of those? Please use those letters to pray. Second thought. Understand the role of our MAG team. Of our MAG team. The MAG team stands for Mission Action Group. And they are a team of people in our church passionate about seeing mission action happen here at BBC. Now here's the key. They don't exist to do BBC's partnership in global mission. They exist to inspire and equip and empower all of our church to be involved in as many ways as our stretching capacity can. So next time you hear one of them share up front, or you're just chatting with one of them from the team, or you look at that web page or, or, or that page on our site, please, please don't think, I'm so glad we've got this all covered. Please don't think that. Instead think, what can I do? What can I advocate for? Who can I pray for? Who can I share this Misho story with? What can I give money towards? Which missionary can I encourage with a, click, uh, with a quick message? And could God be sending me to be trained and go? Third thought. You could listen to Christian music that has a, a global heartbeat. And looking for, for songs wherever you get your music and maybe even build your own playlist. If you're interested in mine, that's a snapshot. You can come and ask me for a link. Uh, but listen to Christian music with a global heartbeat. Number four, read or listen to missionary biographies. There are some fantastic ones. One of our mission agency partners, Pioneers, has a page on the website uh, of a short book list of a, of a bunch of recommendations. Um, I, I personally know in particular one of those, Warriors of Ethiopia, uh, is a fantastic uh, and challenging and inspiring read. Um, and so, so go looking for one of those. If you don't know where to start, that webpage would help you make a start. Uh, the Google Pioneers Australia, you'll find it. And number five, and I've saved the most important till last. Keep a lookout for God's global concern in your Bible reading. Keep a lookout for God's global concern in your Bible reading. Keep a journal in some way. So in your times of, of personal Bible reading, Note down every time you notice God's global heart. Things mentioned like all people, whole world, care for Gentiles, all the peoples. A simple note on your phone or highlighting if you're one of those people or a whole journal where you write them out, whatever works for you. Start taking notice of God's global heart in your Bible reading. So really I want to finish with this question. What's your next step to increase and to increasingly share God's compassion and concern for all people? What's your next step? Because when you're part of what God is doing in his world and right in the midst of it, it is the best thing ever. It is hard, it is tiring, but it is meaningful and beautiful and freeing. We are invited into an epic adventure. 
Jesus' church are the people who are going to change the world. No one else. It's Jesus' church. We're not going to do it with cancel culture or conformity or narrow-mindedness or tribalism. No, we're going to do it with growing churches. Jesus' community is full of grace and truth that are sending each other around the globe. So let's pray. As I lose in prayer, I'm going to borrow a few lines from a song called Give Me Your Eyes by Brandon Heath and just change the, the tense to corporate. Let's pray. Lord God, give us your eyes for just one second. Give us your eyes so we can see everything that we keep missing. Give us your love for humanity. Give us your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond our reach. Give us your heart for the ones forgotten. Give us your eyes so we can see. For Jesus' fame and all the people's joy, we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing again.